0: So I put on a headlamp and I went down to the field after dark and it was still rather wet from that rain. And I started to walk across the field and it looked to me like the ground was moving. It, it, it was bizarre. I kept, you know, when you see it in your peripheral vision, you see motion and it looks like things are moving. So I stopped and I bent down and I looked and there, it was like a, a web of earthworms all across the soil, everywhere in front of me that, that my light pointed to.
1: Welcome to the 269th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. As a teenager in the 1970s, I listened to a lot of heavy metal music most of it while pulling equipment with an Oliver 1650 tractor over the crop fields of our family's farm in southwestern Iowa. It turns out the music wasn't the only thing that was heavy back then. So was the tillage, as Minnesota farmer Mike Seifert recently reminded me. When he and his wife Dana came back to his family's 100-acre farm in east-central Minnesota a few years ago, they realized all that intense tillage over the decades had taken a toll in the form of eroded soils. Mike's father, Big Mike, was aware of that as well. He was also concerned about how tough it had become to control herbicide-resistant weeds in the farm. So, after learning how farmers like Gabe Brown were building resilient, biologically healthy soils using innovative regenerative techniques, the young farmers worked with Mike's dad to integrate cover crops and no-till into their system. The trouble was, since they were a small farm, they didn't have a lot of capital to sink into new equipment. But they were committed to soil health, so the farmers made do by, among other things, modifying their current line of implements, many of which date back to the rockin' 70s and before. With this humble line of machinery, they're raising corn, soybeans, oats, and alfalfa hay. During the transition to soil-healthy farming, things didn't always go smoothly at first, and they've had a few stumbles along the way. But some four years into their conversion to soil-friendly practices, the Seiferts are starting to see positive results in the form of better weed control, less erosion, and more life in the soil. This initial success has prompted them to begin experimenting with an advanced form of composting that can help supercharge soil's biological life and make it even more self-reliant. During a recent LSP soil health workshop, Mike gave a presentation on his family's transition into regenerative farming using minimal investments in equipment. Afterwards, I talked to him about what prompted the transition, how they were able to make significant changes on the cheap, and how a nighttime expedition in one particular field shed some light on the fact that the farm's soils are on the stairway to heaven.
0: Yeah, so we were a, a heavy tillage farm. I mean, for a small operation, Dad still had all of his older equipment from the 70s, and a lot of his methods were, you know, reflective of that time period too. Um, so he did moldboard plow everything, uh, all his cornstalk ground at least, and any time we would plow under an alfalfa field, that was all moldboard plowed, chisel plowing our soybean acres. So everything got tilled. I think for us, the, the motivation was that I was starting to get more involved in the farm. Dad was getting a little older. And I was talking about in the little lecture today, I saw a video of Gabe Brown talking about his transition to no-till and cover crops, and that got me just started on this crazy adventure of <laughs> of trying to find as much information as I could and listening to a lot of other lectures and attending a lot of other workshops, talking about the advantages of no-till and cover crops. So I think with Dad thinking about the farm transitioning to the next generation at this point, I was expressing an interest in taking it over, and him knowing that. He wanted to do the right thing for the land. But then we were also seeing some erosion on our fields, and we were seeing um, a real problem on our place with herbicide-resistant weeds. Mm -hmm. So a combination of all that, right? He was looking at something needed to change for us to be able to fight these problems that we were dealing with, but then also knowing that I was going to be stepping in to take over the operation and, and trying to move to a better methodology on our farm that would leave the land as good or better than, you know, he, he got it, or to try to start turning it around. Mm-hmm. So though, those were our motivating factors, I think, for getting into this. Yeah,
1: but how, roughly how long ago did you kind of start looking at some of this stuff? I think it was uh,
0: 2017 when I really started to get interested in it. My wife and I had been really into gardening and the food movement and things like that before that point. So our minds were already going down this, this path, but in, in a, on a much smaller scale, of course, than, you know, on a full farm. But because we were in that headspace and then we started to see this trend uh, towards more no-till and cover crops and, and social media helps with that a lot, you know, and be, being able to access that through YouTube videos and, and get the word out about different events and things. So once I'd heard about it, it was hard to, <laughs> it was hard to let it go, you know. But yeah, it was about, it was about 2017, I think, when we, when we started really thinking about it.
1: Talk a little bit about how you, what were some of the first things you needed to do um, and kind of what some of the first steps. I I get a sense that you were, you had to experiment a little bit. You also, you know, you have to make a living. You can't, you don't have an unlimited source of funding to experiment, uh, that kind of thing. So you kind of had to, sounds like, get into it piece by piece a little bit.
0: That's absolutely true. And on our place, we had pretty limited resources. Being a smaller farm, still using a lot of older equipment. I mean, Everything from just gaining some knowledge to begin with. We, we had no idea how to begin using cover crops at first, so we had to gather a lot of information. That was our first step, and uh, that came from a, a, several different sources, like I said, several events, lectures. Talking to our local soil and water conservation office, that was a huge step. They got us signed up with a, a cost-share program that we could participate in to start using cover crops and switching to no-till. Um, I believe they only covered the, the, the cover crop portion of it, but we were determined to go to no-till anyway. Looking at our equipment, what we had, what we could do with what we already had, we certainly didn't have anything in the budget really to go buying new equipment. We could we could buy a little bit of stuff, but it had to be used and it had to be affordable and it had to be very intentionally purchased knowing that it was going to solve some kind of a goal for us, you know, or achieve some kind of a goal for us. So. Those were our first big hurdles. Um, We're just getting enough information and figuring out how we could make that transition without investing a whole lot. It's not a big farm. We don't have huge margins. I don't know that a lot of farmers have huge margins no matter what size they are. So that's the challenge is how to get it done. Um, So those were our first steps.
1: Yeah and you you really you talked a little bit about some of the equipment. It was really nominal equipment that you were using and Some of the older equipment. sounds like you did some retrofitting of maybe some current equipment you had, too, uh, to kind of make it work. Absolutely. Um, Yeah,
0: so, I mean, we're talking four-row, wide-row corn planter. (laughs) Um, A standard 12-foot grain drill was what we were using prior to getting into no-till for soybeans and and solid seeding stuff. Pick all our corn with a two-row corn picker. We dry our corn in in wire cribs. Shell with a Minneapolis Moline corn sheller. I mean, this is basically historical farming from the 70s. You know, (laughs) we're like a a living history farm, but we're trying to do things in the modern day using all of this stuff. So with our corn planter, we did do some modifications. We did outfit it with some down pressure springs and some uh, uh, spiked closing wheels, upgraded our closing wheel assemblies to be able to plant our corn no-till. And we did go out and buy an older no-till drill uh, in an effort to plant soybeans. That didn't end up working out for us really great in the long term for beans, but we did find an advantage with that drill in planting cover crops and in planting small grains. And um, I see the potential to use it for alfalfa. So in the end, it ended up being, that ended up being an okay purchase, but that was something that we had to add. I think those were really the main
1: things. Otherwise, we were using mostly existing equipment. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about your results. You, you show a, showed a really great slide of a field that you said had been kind of a nightmare. I think it was a was giant ragweed mm-hmm. that had taken over. And then you showed it, I don't know how much later, but after using some of the the cover cropping and and that type of thing, it it seems like you'd really turned it around. Can you describe that? That seemed like a really good example of some of the concrete results you're seeing from some of these practices. Right.
0: So I guess I should iterate there that when we decided to do this, we really dove in with with both feet or head first or whatever the analogy is. We dove (laughs) big time. And so... We started using cover crops really intensively. I mean, we were planting uh, cereal rye after our regular cash crops, both corn and beans. Uh, we were interseeding our corn crop, and, um, and we were overlapping things as much as we could, you know, letting the rye grow in the soybeans for quite a while before terminating it, even letting the rye and the corn grow together for a while before terminating, which is something that farmers don't usually do or, um, you know, sometimes advise against. But we were looking at it from the position of what's the best soil health solution, not necessarily what's going to get us the the biggest yield, you know. So we started in 2019, really, the way that we're doing it now. Technically, we started in 2018, but we were just getting our toes in the water then. So from 2019 through 2021, I have to remind myself sometimes that we haven't been doing this all that long. (laughs) It's been three years, but it feels like a little longer for all the stuff that we've tried. Mm -hmm. We really struggled in 2019 with a lot of weeds um, in our fields because that's when we were just first getting started, and our soil was technically no-till at that point, but it was still behaving a lot like tilled soil. And we had a we had a very very bad weed infestation in our in our uh, soybeans that year. And then over the next two years, just using those cover crops intensively, and planting green, and waiting to terminate, and making sure that we got in cover crops after after harvest time. We saw um, a pretty dramatic turnaround. We had very much lower weed pressure in 2021 on our whole farm. And I'm really hoping that that is a trend that we're going to continue to see on our place. Weeds were were a huge bane for us. And Dad didn't like to traditionally use a lot of strong herbicides. You know, he didn't put down a residual in the spring. He was relying mostly on, you know, post-emerge contact herbicides to deal with his weeds and it just wasn't getting the job done. So by adding the cover crops and the no-till, I think those were kind of the key ingredients to help us push that process along. I didn't hurt that Enlist beans came out and we were able to use Enlist one herbicide for some of our weed control. So we're just putting a lot of different pieces together. We're using all the tools we have available But at the same time, bear in mind that our our philosophy on this is that we want to cut our chemical use back as much as we can, and we want to cut our fertilizer use and our input costs in general back as much as we can. So what I think we've seen is that we've gotten effective results using all of these tools but not having to use a whole lot of any of them. Or if we're going to use a whole lot of something, we're going to use a whole lot of the no-till and the cover crops, and we're going to reduce those artificial inputs as much as we can, and we've seen some pretty good results from that.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we're sitting here now uh, in February and people are looking forward to the 2022 growing season and input prices are through the roof right now. Fertilizer prices, herbicide prices, fuel, you name it. So any way you can reduce those input costs and kind of make that soil self-sustaining is huge right now, even more so, I think, than it has been in recent years. I, I think that's absolutely true. But uh, we are working on uh, making
0: homemade, biocomplete compost, I guess, oh. is the, the terminology. I, I went through the Soil Food Web classes with Dr. Laningham's uh, group there. And we are hoping this year, we have we actually have some grant money, and we're working with the Minnesota Soil Health Coalition to do um, some work with doing some compost extract, trying to maybe do a little bit of homebrewed, homemade fertility, you know, by... by, by injecting some microbial extract into our soil or putting it on with the planter perhaps. A lot of it's still in the preliminary stages, so we don't. there's some unknowns yet for how we're going to do that. But it ended up, we were thinking about doing this already last year, and now with the input cost issue that you just mentioned, it seems like a really appropriate time to be thinking about it and, and, and trying to find ways to get the yield that we need and the profit margin that we need without having to rely quite so much on those outside inputs. And focus, for me anyway, that means focusing more on the soil biology that's already there, trying to foster that, trying to get some natural nutrient cycling going by ramping up that biology. I think that's going to be a big part of our solution, but of course, it's still in the future, so we have a ways to go.
1: Yeah, and I was wondering, is it too, still too early, or, or have you been able to kind of pencil out, this is the economic returns we're getting out of building this soil health? I mean, is there any examples of that? So
0: on our farm, one of the things that is unfortunate, I think, about being a small farm like us is we, we don't have the yield mapping and the technology that some farmers have. We don't have the data sets that a larger farm might be able to put together with an investment in that technology. Um, so I don't have real good numbers off the top of my head. It's maybe one of the weak points in my whole situation here. But I can tell you that It has been, we have had some of our more profitable years. When we actually sit down, you know, at tax time and pencil everything out, we have had a couple of our more profitable years. 2020 especially was good for us. Good growing year, using these methods, good yields on a lot of stuff. 2021, drought was an issue. Um, We did see a reduction in our yields, but we're also getting more diversified. So, you know, where one crop was cut back a little bit, our corn yield was down a little bit in 2021. But our soybean yield kind of made up for it you know and we grew some small grains in 2021 that didn't go quite as well as we'd hoped but it, by adding all these extra pieces to the puzzle what I think ultimately we're going to see is that we don't have all our eggs in one basket or two baskets if you know yeah. if you can consider corn and soybeans to be kind of the major crops that farmers grow yeah. if we can take those two baskets we already had and add three or four more baskets with different crop diversity, focusing more on alfalfa hay and direct marketing hay and maybe direct marketing some small grains and things like that. I think what we'll start to see is that we can be more consistent over the years. And that's really the name of the game, right? You want to make a living at farming. You need to be able to hopefully guarantee that you can do well at something every year. So I think, I think that's kind of where we're headed, I hope.
1: That's a really good point. It's like you're, maybe you're not going to get those peak yields every year but you're going to get a consistent, profitable yield. I think sometimes people equate high yields with profitability, and that's not always the case, especially if the amount of cost that you put into the inputs to create that record yield (laughs) uh, leaves you in the red. Absolutely, absolutely, and I I couldn't agree
0: with that more. I just went to a talk recently where Rick Clark uh, was talking about his operation. I can't remember if he's in Ohio or Indiana, um, but he's... He's in Indiana. Indiana, yeah. He, he's got um, several thousand acres, and he's kind of trying to do no-till organic. And one of the things he talked about at his presentation was that when he was still using some chemistry before he had gone organic, but he was diversifying his crop rotation, and he was using no-till and cover crops, his whole profit margin and production s- uh, scale kind of evened out. And, boy, if we could get to that point where, like you said, just some consistency from year to year... Mm-hmm. Being able to turn a consistent profit and reduce our input costs, yeah, I'm not looking to set any kind of yield goals on our farm. I just want a consistent profit margin that we can look at, and I want to know that I'm doing it in an ecologically beneficial way because if we don't take care of our soil, we don't have a farm. You know, that's that's got to be our focus.
1: Do you have any... Um... Any tips for anybody who is looking, they've heard about this, they want to just get their toe in the water a little bit, uh, maybe both maybe what you learned that worked, but maybe some mistakes you made (laughs) uh, along the way But uh, that might help somebody get started. You know, you're not an expert on this, but, uh, you know, you've had this experience and you're still moving along on it. Uh, Just any thoughts on that? Boy, if I ever claim
0: to be an expert at this, um, uh, (laughs) that means that I've quit learning and then something's really wrong with me. Um, But (laughs) probably the biggest tip that I can give is that if you're thinking about getting started, there are a lot of resources out there that you can reach out and get some information. And that's got to be the first thing. We did dive in kind of with both feet. And in some cases, we didn't know exactly what we were doing. Um, But I mean... You know, LSP has resources. The Minnesota Soil Health Coalition, which I'm a member of, has resources. I mean, I'm a farmer mentor for that group, and we're a nonprofit group of uh, farmers who are implementing these practices, and we're willing to share that experience with other farmers. Uh, The good, the bad, and everything in between, and the stuff that we don't know yet, you know, Mm -hmm. as much as we can figure that out. So that's a group that, you know, you can reach out to and say, I'm thinking about doing this. Can you pair me up with a farmer mentor? And just gather as many, as many resources as you can. Talk to your local soil and water conservation office. They were really instrumental in helping us get started because they had a cost share program. That was huge. We got enough experience during that three year cost share program that when we started, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but by the end of that third year, I was ready to be independent of that program. I wanted to be planning my own seed mixes and doing stuff that was beyond what they were offering us to do. So it was a perfect thing for us to, a way for us to get started. Every operation is going to be different, and everybody's going to need to figure out, when it comes to equipment and methodology, how they want to approach this. So, you know, you have to keep in mind that uniqueness of every farm. But there are lots of resources out there. And I would recommend, you know, before you dive in headfirst, that you do talk to some people, you do get some, some, some advice on how to get going. But then there's a certain point where you just have to do it. And once you're at that point, you know, hopefully you know and you go out and give it a try and then you learn from your mistakes and you keep going
1: from there. The, you know, one of the keys to success is being able to monitor how things are going and visually and and feel and smell and all of that, uh, you know, and, and letting that soil kind of tell you whether it's reacting well to what you're doing. It sounds like you had a real uh, striking example of seeing how well things were going on a rainy night when you were out, to, out to, uh, kind of checking the fields?
0: Right when you're dealing with soil health you know it, it feels like so much of it is beneath the surface and you need a microscope to check it out so this was one of the more dramatic experiences I've had on our farm when going through this process of, of transitions in no-till and soil health practices but so this past summer we grew seven acres of oats and after those oats were harvested and the field was was clear, we did a little light tillage on it because we were going to brilliant seed it into alfalfa. And we had everything ready to go. We had the seeder rented from the soil and water office, and the next morning we were going to be seeding that into alfalfa. And then we got like a, a one-inch rain, so we couldn't go when we wanted to. And it was the, n- the next night. I had been at the farm all day. It was getting dark, and... I had been busy with other things and I wanted to go out and check that field just to see you know if it was going to be fit to plant maybe the next day or try to get an idea of how soon we could get in there. So I put on a headlamp and I went down to the field after dark and it was still rather wet from that rain and I started to walk across the field and it looked to me like the ground was moving. It it, it was bizarre I kept you know when you see it in your peripheral vision you see motion and it looks like things are moving so I stopped and I bent down and I looked and there, it was like a, a web of earthworms all across the soil, everywhere in front of me the, that my light pointed to. And every time I took a step, those worms were darting back into their, their middens or their burrows. And I stood up and I just kind of stood there for a minute and took it in and realized, you know, this is probably because we grew oats in this field, which had been in a corn and soybean rotation. It was one of our poorer fields, and it was one of the reasons we picked that for a small grain and then plan to put it into alfalfa after that. And the idea that this had created this this reaction, you know, where we had all these earthworms that had come out after this rain, and it had been dry. It had stopped raining in June, and it hadn't rained again until mid-August. And that's kind of where we're talking about here as far as the timeline. And the fact that they were all up on the surface after that rain, after dark, foraging around, was really wild. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was like a net. They were overlapping each other and just covering the the surface of that field. And I tiptoed my way out of there. I'll never forget that. It was just, um, I'd never seen anything like that on our farm before. Uh, I'd never seen worms up on the surface like that to that degree. So that was a really cool experience. And that was one of those rare moments where you actually had kind of a little message from nature that said, you know what? You're doing the right thing here. And this is a little bit of proof that you can see with your own two eyes that that something's going right.
1: For resources on ways to build soil health profitably, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground, episode 269 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at Project.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly. If you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit Project.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.